Many of us didn't grow up observing the church calendar, but since the fourth century, the church has ordered time according to the significant moments in the life of Jesus and the early church. This calendar begins with the celebration of Advent, a period of four weeks leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and we anticipate His second coming. In between these important Advents, we wait in the tension. We pray for deliverance. We cry out against injustice. We long for the culmination of redemption and the reign of King Jesus. The texts that are used for these weeks are not your typical Christmas passages. They are prophetic, apocalyptic, and filled with warning and hope. Each one leads us to consider Christmas for what it truly is. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Enjoy the episode. So this is week three of our Advent series. We've been uh, attempting to rethink Advent a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll get into this, but it's less of a, a preparation towards Christmas, but more uh, something completely and utterly different. I think that you'll find that from this passage. We're in Luke chapter three. We're gonna be continuing in the story of John the Baptist that we began last week. We've got a handful of verses here that might catch you a bit off guard. This is Luke chapter three, beginning in verse seven. This is the wilderness teaching of John the Baptist. According to the Gospel of Luke, it says, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. The word of God for the people of God. If this passage sounds even vaguely familiar to you, then good. That means you're paying attention. To help you place it, we actually used this sermon a couple of months ago in one of our contemplative exercises, which is just fancy TRP talk for. We read this passage a few times, and each time through, we attempted to allow God to speak to us through it. This very old, very tried method of biblical engagement is called Lectio Divina. 
And if your personal uh, reading is feeling a bit stagnant and stale, I would encourage you to try this at home. Pick a passage, read through it three times, and each time through say, what is God speaking to me? What are the words or phrases or images that are kind of leaping off of the page in this sacred reading? Now we're back to this odd text because as I mentioned last week, we're using the lectionary during the season of Advent. And the lectionary, remember, is a widely used collection of four pre-assigned passages from different parts of the Bible. There's an Old Testament reading, a gospel reading, there's a poetic reading, uh, there's usually a reading from the epistles. There are different uh, passages from different parts of the Bible that have been specifically curated and chosen to accompany each week of the church calendar. If that doesn't sound exciting. I don't know what does. Are you guys with me? Clearly not. During Advent, uh, the readings focus our attention on the ministry of the adult John the Baptist for two straight weeks. Now, given the content of the verses that I just read, this selection, it might seem odd at first, but it's important to remind ourselves that Advent, it's not really about preparing for Christmas. It's not stables and stars. It's not mangers and gifts. It's not about the newborn baby Jesus in this particular moment in the church's calendar. In fact, Advent isn't about looking back in time at all. It's about looking ahead, specifically looking ahead to the second coming, the second Advent of Jesus, which is why the lectionary is not shy to include prophetic and apocalyptic texts that include the culturally objectionable images of divine wrath, impending judgment, and unquenchable fire. This is John the Baptist's wilderness sermon, and it's offered 30 years past the manger scene in Bethlehem. In it, he is preparing his audience, this brood of vipers that has slithered into the wilderness looking to escape judgment. He is preparing them for what is to come. He says things like this, even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Later, when he's comparing his work with the work of Jesus, he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. That's servant work. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. He's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to bring uh, the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Merry Christmas. One scholar rightly notes that Luke could hardly have found a more disturbing introduction to John's address to the crowds than by uttering, you brood of vipers. This is especially true when one considers the beginning of the book of Luke, which is surrounded by the sheer hopefulness that is included in the predictions about the Messiah who would show up and deliver these people for people who had been waiting for God's activity to happen here and now on earth, redemption, it seemed near through these prophetic predictions. But in the announcement of John's message, a drastic shift is taking place. Again, uh, one scholar summarizes what readers feel and what the ancient Jewish audience in the wilderness perhaps may have felt in hearing this. The announcement of judgment is as alarming as it is unexpected. 
And here, as I was preparing uh, some, of, some of the reflections on this particular passage, I think that that assessment, it might ring true with some of us in this room, maybe some of the people at home that listen to the podcast. I doubt that you came to church this evening, nine days before Christmas, expecting a sermon on judgment. I doubt that you expected me to utter the phrases unquenchable fire and separating wheat from the chaff. This is supposed to be light and easy. This is supposed to be safe for guests. This is supposed to be a warm invitation to ready us for the holidays. And let me commiserate with those in the room that are thinking to themselves, oh man, I don't really wanna think about this or talk about this. Let me commiserate with you because if it was up to me, this would not be the text that I would have chosen to preach this evening, not just because of its odd imagery, but because I'm aware of what the talk of these symbols might be doing to some of you as you sit here in the room right now. Let me explain. A large part of my job is to sit with you. Usually it's over coffee. Sometimes it's over a slightly stronger beverage of choice. But my job is to listen to your stories, to hear where you have come from, to hear what has brought you into this space at TRP. And many times the individuals that I am seated with, what they bring to the table is the weighed down experience of past church hurt. Indeed, for some of you reaching out to me, whether it's through Facebook or through a text or through an email, reaching out to me or the boldness that it takes to walk through those doors into this space is an act of faith. And it's one that we do not take lightly. It might be an act of faith because of something that a pastor said to you at some point in your upbringing. Perhaps it's something that a congregant did or didn't do. Maybe it was a public sermon that shifted from a general exposition to the congregation to a very pointed, very personal message that is geared to only reach a few, maybe even one person in the room. Sometimes church hurt is due to an overwhelming experience of what can only be termed intellectual and spiritual claustrophobia. The church and its leadership would not hear your questions. It would not entertain your doubts. It would not welcome any hope for conversation. It would not legitimize or even acknowledge any sort of differences that you might bring to the table. And oftentimes, somewhere orbiting over these experiences are the triggering phrases, wrath, judgment, unquenchable fire. I would also submit that it's rarely the, the supposed veracity of these concepts that caused harm. It's not as though people were engaging in whether or not these things take place. Rather, it's the way in which these terms have been levied against people. You will experience God's wrath. You will be judged. You are going to hell. I've been reading a book recently by a controversial scholar named Marcus Borg, in which he discusses the God that he received as a child growing up followed by what he would describe as the God that he never knew on his uh, spiritual journey. Viewed through the lens of his finger-pointing pastor as a child, 
he described the God of his youth as a finger-pointing God. And for many of you, again, maybe not the people in this space, but for many of you within the sound of my voice at any moment that you're hearing it, that's what you've known. I do say that many of you have known that. That's probably an overstatement. The reality of the situation is that for many of those people, those images are too harsh, those memories are too fresh, those experiences are too haunting, and this is one of the reasons why they're not in the room. We are not to be trusted because what can separate our community of faith from a previous community of faith that hurt them? What makes me safe when other pastors have used their status and their influence for harm and not for good. Still though, before we proceed any farther and before I lose some of you who might resonate with with this experiential uh, past that I've outlined, it's probably important that I welcome all of you at this point to whatever degree you are able to come to this passage with something of a blank slate to place whatever it is that you have heard off to the side for a moment, to rest assured in the the span of, of this sermon that these images of judgment will not be used against you, to hear perhaps for the very first time the full message of the gospel that we receive from John's teaching. And for the rest of us, because I understand that in any room there's lots of different experiences. For some of you, you don't have past church hurt. You don't have authoritarian figures in your life that use the Bible to keep you down. I'd encourage that group of people to hold on. As I like to say as I'm driving to the kids in the back seat, hold on to your butts. Particularly if we have been inclined to hear a passage like this and immediately begin dividing people into wheat and chaff dividing people into us and them, dividing people into in and out, I think that there is something for us to consider in this passage, and it might not be easy and light. It certainly is not going to be stars and stables. John begins, and we referred to this last week, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And if you were really paying attention last week, you'll, you'll know that I did misspeak. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen sometimes. And I'm here to publicly proclaim that I misspoke last week. This is what happened. I said that in the book of Luke, John was calling the people in power to account for their actions in this sermon. And he did. I wasn't completely wrong. It just wasn't in Luke In the retelling in Matthew, when John says, you brood of vipers, he is specifically looking towards the venomous snakes that are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the rulers of the day. He was pinpointing the religious elite to talk about the ways that they have hurt people. His message, in fact, it seems to be focused on these folks, the ones who have power. But in Luke, it says that John addresses not the religious elite, but the crowds, It doesn't differentiate between the elite and the non-elite. Instead, it focuses on anyone who looks to their ancestry, their bloodline, their Jewish roots as a source of hope. They were in, in their minds, because of who they were and where they came from. Namely, they were in because they were ancestors of Abraham. 
But for John, this confidence is quickly disassembled as any self-justification that's based on heritage was completely and thoroughly rejected by John. Instead, he exhorts his audience to do this, and I want your ears to perk up a bit. He says, bear fruit that is worthy of repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, therefore we are okay. John, in other words, is challenging their complacency by calling them to bear fruits. And he is saying the thing that they have been banking on, their bloodline, their heritage, their Jewish roots, it's not good enough. He's asking them, what does your life look like? What are you doing? Can anyone tell that you are repentant? Does your faith matter? Or are you just trying to come out here in the wilderness to be baptized to hedge your bets? For John, it isn't about religious ritual. It's about a life well lived. And there's a lot that could be said here in light of this, a lot that I think is applicable for us even though our context is noticeably different. We do not bank on our heritage to make us okay. We do not bank on our bloodline to make us okay. We do not bank on the fact that we are ancestors of Abraham to make us okay. I think that there's a lot in this passage as well that could be heard by the finger pointers. Because embedded in this teaching is one of the beautiful truths of the New Testament. It's not restricted to one people group. In fact, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the doors become flung open wide for anyone who will believe on him to be part of this family. In the grand scheme of the Bible, in this narrative, we have been grafted in, as Paul would say. We're not part of the original tree that people were praising as they trod off into the wilderness to be baptized. We are the outsiders looking in. We are the late entries into this family tree, and this should not be forgotten, but it often is by us because we have become privileged. We have become the elite, we have become the inheritors, we have become the benefactors, we have become the ones with the right ancestors, we have become the ones with the right beliefs. We are the ones going out into the desert, maybe like that brood of vipers 2,000 years ago, thinking that we are just fine. And as a result, we, like them, have justified the lack of fruit in our own lives. One scholar says, John calls for a change of lifestyle that reflects the genuineness of our repentance. Just as false love is not love at all, so also repentance that is not sincere is not repentance. There is an integrity to the repentant. Check this, their way of life, their priorities, their commitments, their personal relationships, their passion for peace and justice, and their unplanned acts of compassion all give evidence to their repentance. Daryl Bach states it much more simply, real repentance manifests in concrete action. Are you hearing me? 
I think that there is a proclivity in our reading of the Bible and in our conversations and just in the way that we process faith for us to insert ourselves in the role of the hero, to insert ourselves in the role of the people who are in, to insert ourselves in the role of the people that Jesus praises. But I heard a podcast a couple weeks ago that I think brought up an interesting point. Uh, The guy who was speaking, his name is Daniel Kirk, and he said that it's important for us to not come away from the passage until we've been able to name how we or our communities of faith tend to do the very sorts of things that Jesus's opponents, or in this case, that John's opponents are doing. And for us, these are the questions. Does our lifestyle reflect the genuineness of our repentance? Do our priorities and commitments and personal relationships and passion for peace and justice and our unplanned acts of compassion give evidence of our repentance? Does it manifest in concrete action or is it something that is hidden? Is it something that is internalized and spiritual? Is it something that no one else can see at any moment? If our repentance does manifest in concrete action, I'm inclined to think that we would be much less finger pointy. It's a technical term, read it in a book. If it does, I'm inclined to think that we won't use biblical words and concepts as weapons. If our repentance manifests in concrete actions, I'm inclined to think that our lives will be an active invitation to any and all Jew and Gentile to adopt the language of John, to experience the love of Jesus, to participate in the work that he has called us to, and to conclude that the way that we are living now, it pales in comparison to the selfless love that has been modeled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In this version of the story, which is unique to Luke, the crowds get it. They immediately respond to this message, this weighty call that their repentance should be viewed. They say, what should we do? They're looking for practical steps. They've traveled out into the desert to hear from John, to experience the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They've been lambasted for their self-justifications. And all the while, they come to this point, they say, well, okay, we can hear that. What are we supposed to do? And in the examples that John gives, it's frighteningly simple. He calls for an end to greed and materialism. Can we pause there nine days before Christmas and contemplate that? To the crowd, he says, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. To the tax collectors, one of the most hated groups in this time period, along with the soldiers, actually, that are addressed next, the tax collectors, he says, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Tax collecting was a, was a really messy business back in the day because every person that was collecting a tax had a boss over them, and that person usually had a boss over them. It was kind of like a pyramid scheme, but by the time it got down to any person uh, that was collecting the tax, there were so many levies that had to be placed on it for that one individual to make money that it was completely extortionary to the person who was paying the taxes. But John says, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Notice this as well. He doesn't tell the tax collector to stop collecting tax. 
He just says, do it in such a way that it is ethical. To the soldiers, he says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Do not use your place of power over people and lord it over them to affect them negatively. Be satisfied with your wages, he says. Again, he does not tell them to stop being soldiers. He tells them to do it in a way that is ethical. At the core of John's teaching, repentance and ethical living go together hand in glove. Daryl Bach writes, John's reply about the product of repentance is exceedingly practical. He doesn't call the crowd to adopt the way that he's living. He doesn't tell everyone to leave their homes and to come out into the wilderness and to eat locusts and honey and to wear animal pelts. He doesn't tell them that. Instead, he points to meeting the needs of others as the baseline symbol of true repentance. In my experience, finger pointing is rarely done with an eye towards our love of neighbor. Stick with me here. I've never shared a coffee with anybody who has recounted the chastisement of a pastor by saying that they told me that I will experience God's wrath and I will be subject to judgment because I failed to give up my extra coat to the person in need. No one sits across from the table and says that they felt the wrath of a pastor because they didn't invite anyone to share in their abundance of food or because they overcharged their clients, or because they used their power for their own gain. Our focus has been elsewhere. Our focus as the churched elite has been elsewhere. Our focus has been on the sins of others and not our sins. For us to read a passage like this where John is calling us to live out repentance in a way that demonstrates concrete acts of love of neighbor, if we focused on that for a second, we would be very slow to address the speck in our neighbor's eye while we have a plank in our own because perhaps, perhaps, perhaps we would be thinking about the ways that we do not share from our wealth for those that are hurting, that we do not invite people who have no food to come sit at our table, to to judge the ways that we use our power and status in a way that negatively affects others or in a way that just looks out for our own benefit. In John's call to self-examination, there's a message that is to be heard by all in this moment, and here it is. You've heard it already, but I'm gonna say it again for the sake of review. Do our priorities and commitments and personal relationships, is our passion for peace and justice and our unplanned acts of compassion. And I don't think that just means paying for somebody's Chick-fil-A in the line behind you. Does that give evidence of our repentance? Perhaps we should start there. And rather than casting judgment and condemnation on others, we should invite them in as fellow travelers learning what it looks like to live a life of repentance to King Jesus. It's very interesting to me that at the end of this passage, it states, so with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. It's odd, isn't it? To think of divine wrath and impending judgment and unquenchable fire as good news. 
I don't want to go too far here because these admittedly are challenging topics that I'm not attempting to address in any meaningful way this evening. But I think the larger problem is that our culture has deformed John's message to the point of excluding its open call to anyone who is willing to repent and to live it out. To exclude anyone who is willing to manifest the concrete acts of generosity and love in very practical and achievable ways and in so doing to provide an image of the one who is to come to the world around us. In my line of work, and I'm going to close with this, in my line of work, many of my own concrete acts take place over coffee. If you're in Rise Up from the hours of nine to five on most days of the week, you will probably find me there doing some bit of work. But most of my concrete acts take place in those moments as I lovingly point to a different image of God, to a different picture of the gospel, to a different community of faith. And as I attempt, however humbly it might be, to instill the truth that my conversation partner, whoever it might be, is a beloved child of the Most High God, that they have a seat at the table and rather spend my time finger pointing at them to invite them in to participate alongside of me in loving God and loving our neighbor well together. I don't know what your concrete acts of love look like this evening, but I know that as I scan the room, we've got teachers and we've got businessmen and we've got people in retail and we've got people that deal with students and we've got folks in any line of work that have people within your sphere of influence. And I know that just like me, we've got folks in the back that are nursing these hurts from past experience that don't know a good God because the only version of God that they've been given is one that says to them repeatedly, you are not worth anything. The only people or things that they have heard about this unquenchable fire is not how to uh, escape it perhaps, but that they are worthy of it and continuing on and on to tell them that that is what they are condemned towards. My hope is that together, not just through our conversations, but through the ways that we live, that our concrete acts of love, the Holy Spirit driving you to reach out to your fellow human being and give them a different picture of what it could be. The church at large needs to move beyond finger pointing and instead into a hand that's extended or an arm that's extended for an embrace, imploring people that Jesus has not left you and will not leave you and wants more than anything else to welcome you home. If it happens to be the case this evening that you're one of the people that have baggage with regard, maybe not to church, but with regard to who God is in your life, let me be the first one to tell you he is welcoming you home. There is nothing that has been done nor anything that can be done to separate you from him. My hope this evening is that we begin to rally around that truth, that we begin to shout it from the mountaintops and that our lives show a different image 
of what it looks like to follow Jesus by our concrete acts of love of neighbor that demonstrate the repentance that we offer to him each and every day. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.